this, I, I, I waited until you had your hands full. <laughs> I was going to wait until you pick a bite. But. No. <laughs> Only five, we just thank you again that we can be in the house of the Lord. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you for Dave for bringing us word to be with Pastor this morning as he brings us the message. Thank you again for your goodness to all of us. Thank you so much. Amen. We're uh, coming up on Easter here in a few weeks. Thought we'd uh, open with Psalm 22 this morning, which is a messianic psalm. Psalm 22, which is a fairly long psalm, but nonetheless, we can start that. Whoever gets there first, can read it out.
it starts at a, a Passover meal um, in, in celebration and remembrance of what God has done in delivering his people. And Jesus is spending this with his, his intimate uh, associates, the, the 12 that he chose. And in the midst of that, he's pouring out his life. He's pouring out his life as a drink offering to the Lord. And what he's about ready to do in less than 24 hours, um, he'll be arrested and tried and beaten and uh, hung on a cross and will die. And you see that this psalm really kind of covers the kind of um, grief and cry of the heart that Messiah would have had as he was going through that. And yet he went through it with full knowledge. He knew that um, that they were going to surround him as a bunch of enemies, that they were going to take his clothing and cast lots for them so that they wouldn't be torn in fulfillment of prophecy, that um, he would be, as it's, it's talked about here, where he's on the cross, all his bones are out of joint, his heart is out of wax, uh, his strength is dried up. His tongue cleaves to his jaws or the top of his mouth. Um, you know, all of that Jesus knew when he was in that uh, upper room with his disciples and celebrating the Passover meal. And he knew that he was the Passover lamb for not just the nation of Israel, but for all of God's people in the world. And we understand that the, the nation of Israel had a, a particular role in representing God to the world as a, as a nation of priests. Um, but what Jesus was doing, he was doing for all. And as I mentioned when we got to uh, chapter 13, one of my, my favorite uh, verses in John and, and maybe in the Bible, because it really shows the heart of God. In chapter 13, verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, <coughs> having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, or to the uttermost. And then we, we went through uh, in the upper room discourse of John, and John is fulfilling that theme that he declares at the end of his gospel, which I said I would read every week, so I'm going to read it again this week. If you want to know what John is about, you go to John chapter 20, verse 31, and I'm going to back it up one verse to give you a little context. It says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So it's not just about knowing who Christ is, but it's about being transformed in that knowledge. Sometimes we call it the journey from the head to the heart, where it actually transforms our life, that um, we believe and trust in Him as our Savior, that God didn't abandon us in our sin to die, but actually came to die in our place, that He might save us from death, that He would conquer death and bring us into life, and that that life is in Jesus Himself. And that's the important thing that we want to understand is that um, it isn't that Jesus paid a, a penalty only and that that forgiveness um, allows us to, to have life, but the very life that we have is his life. It's the life of God that is resurrected from the tomb. And that's what Easter is about, right? It's the resurrection. That it, we read through Psalm 22 and the horrible account of Jesus being uh, crucified that was not the end. So in the darkest night, when the, the dogs are around you, surrounding, howling, wanting to tear you apart, that is not the end. And Jesus knows it's not the end, and that's why he wants to give, not just to the world, a knowledge of who he is, but he wants to give those who are closest to him this personal knowledge of who he is, and that that needs to persist in their life. It needs to not just be a momentary knowledge, but it needs to be an experiential knowledge that affects them 
from that point forward and how they live. And so that's what the Upper Room Discourse is about. It's about that personal ministry of Jesus to his people, to, his, to those that have chosen him. And we understand from chapter 13 that there was one of the 12 that didn't choose Jesus, right? That there was Judas. And yet, Jesus did not exclude Judas. Rather, he washed his feet, gave him a place of honor at the table. And I personally believe that if Judas would have come back to Jesus, even after betraying him, that Jesus would have restored him too. I say that because there was another at the table who said he would be faithful and true to Jesus, Peter, that would, in less than 12 hours, deny him. Right? And would deny him publicly, and he would deny him so loud, it was like a, a stream of curses coming off the lips of a sailor about this man, Jesus. I don't know the man. Right? And yet, Jesus would go out of his way to restore Peter. Yes? But uh, at least he was following Jesus. The rest of the disciples were with him. Right. They, they were like John. Yeah. You know, so. Except for John. <laughs> well, I don't know what John did after. Well. He doesn't put it in his book here. It doesn't. But one of the things you see in this book <clears throat> is you see a firsthand account of what's going on yeah. in those last hours. And the reason you have a first-hand account is because there was one who was there, and that was John. So let me, let me tell you a little bit about John, a little bit about Peter. So John and Peter were like this. They grew up in the, the town of Bethsaida, which is on the north of the Sea of Galilee. It was a fishing village, and they were from two fishing families. So there was Peter and Andrew and John and James, the son of Zebedee, sometimes called the Sons of Thunder, right? Because they were a rowdy bunch. And uh, so these were, you know, even though they were good Jews in the sense of that they respected um, the heart of the uh, Jewish religion, the worship of Yahweh, and they were nonetheless uh, sailors, right? They were fishermen. So they were pretty, pretty uh, rowdy folk. And uh, it's interesting that Jesus called them out. Well, Peter um, gets introduced uh, to Jesus by his brother Andrew, who was with John at the very beginning. So John and Andrew were the two disciples that were following John the Baptist. So we read about this in, in chapter 1 of John. And that um, they were seeking out John the Baptist because they had heard about John the Baptist and his message. His message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. And that uh, John was uh, preaching that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And that that was uh, more immediate than future. Right? So people wanted to hear what John had to say. Well, John the Apostle and Andrew, Peter's brother, were two that went to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist said, that one, Jesus, is the one that you should follow. So immediately, they listened. They listened to John the Baptist. Not everybody listened to John the Baptist, right, that were his followers. Some were good followers of John the Baptist, even to the point where John was arrested, thrown in prison, and beheaded. Right? So he still had disciples. Even though John the Baptist pointed his disciples to Jesus said, this is the one you should follow. Well, when John the Apostle and Andrew heard this, they followed Jesus. And the, the first Jesus, seeing that they were following him, they were literally following him, uh, turned to him and said, what are you looking for? What do you want? And they didn't know what to say, so they said, uh, show us where you're, you're staying. And that was their way of finding out about the pedigree. They wanted to know the lineage of Christ. Who's your dad? That was basically what they're saying. And Jesus says, well, come on, find out. So he has a dinner with them, and that dinner transformed them. Andrew went and found Peter, 
John went and found his brother, and they started telling everybody that, hey, Messiah has come. Right? Um, so very early on, Peter and John, uh, knowing each other, good friends, um, were followers of Christ. In fact, it was Peter, you recall, that right before Jesus goes up to Mount Hermon, declared, when Jesus asked, he said, who do the people say that I am? What does the world say about me? And they said all sorts of things. They said what the rumors were. But none of the rumors were that he was the Messiah, the Christ. So Jesus asked the, the twelve, he said, so who do you say that I am? And Peter jumps up and says, you're the Christ, you're the Son of God. And Jesus acknowledged that. So he acknowledged within his, his tight group that in fact he was that one that the prophecies had talked about and that he had demonstrated in his ministry. He then went up on the mountain. And who went up with him? Peter and John. And James, right? Um, so you have these two gnarly, three gnarly sailors, and they go up, and uh, they're the ones that actually see Jesus in his glory as he is perfected as fully human, fully God. And that he is revealed in his glory. Now, that's really important for us because it tells us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, it says, when he, Christ, appears, and then it has this, this uh, phrase, it's like an equal sign, it says, who is our life? In other words, Christ is our very life. We will be as he is in glory. So as Jesus appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration, that's what we were created for. That's what God offers to us as eternal life. Jesus had it right then. It was not something that he had to achieve. It was his by right. And he chose instead to come down from the mountain and to die for the whole world. Right? And that's what we're reading about now. So here's Peter, having seen all that and having denied it. He's as bad as Judas. Um, and, and all of us have probably been in a position in our lives where we felt like, man, I should have said something and I didn't. I just denied Christ, either by my silence or by my active voice. Has anybody in the room experienced that? I, I did. Okay. I failed my Lord so many times. And yet he has gently restored me. And he hasn't crushed me. Although, sometimes to be used, you need to fall on the rock, and you need to be broken. But you don't want that rock falling on you, because you'll be crushed. That's what the, the scripture tells us, right? So, that's Peter. That would have been Judas, too. So, it tells us something about the heart of God. So, after he explains the love that he has for his people, and shows them what it is that he is about to do and what they should do and then gives them a command, do likewise right, love this is what it's about and he enables Judas to betray him if he chooses but in the process of doing that he gives him everything, like I say he washed his feet, he gave him a place of honor at the table and he, and he provided for him he gave him a morsel dipped, right? The, the bread that was dipped in that um, that which would be the, the oil and the bitters in the, the day, as part of that Seder dinner. Um, that's what was given to Judas. That, um, sure enough, it was bitter, but it was also the way of deliverance. And so Judas then chooses to betray him. Jesus then recognizes, now this is really heavy on Jesus' heart, so we read that in Psalm 22, that's the heaviness of heart that Jesus must have had as he was sitting there and yet we read through how he loved them to the uttermost eternal <laughs> and we get to uh, chapter 14 and I'm going to read through it and I made a comment last week that chapter uh, 14 verse 6 is one of those uh, special, in my book, special verses of doctrine. Critical doctrine. Critical into our understanding of who Christ is, what he's done for us. Um, and in that 
critical document passage, there are zero variant readings. So I mentioned last week that if you take the, the what is our New Testament made up of over 20,000 different manuscripts, different portions of texts and complete texts, codices, and you, of those, throughout history, there have been transcription errors, as they get copied repeatedly before the printing press, or even with the printing press, you get transcription errors from time to time. Or that they might have margin notes that get included. Um, they have all sorts of different um, corruption of the text that can occur. In this verse, 14 verse 6, there are zero. That means God wanted to preserve this for us. So that we would know with certainty, we may have questions about smaller issues of doctrine, but about major issues of doctrine and salvation, we have zero question. So I'm going to go ahead and read chapter 14, and then we'll, we'll pick up. So do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And I would, I would take one step back. Um, it can be interpreted as two... Um, imperatives, believe in God as a command, believe also in me as a command. Or it can be interpreted as uh, a statement, you believe in God and an imperative, believe also in me. And that's the way I would suggest it is. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me. But you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the words which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. Excuse me. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. <clears throat> you heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. 
Now I have told you before it happens, <clears throat> so that when it happens you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, and I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Um, I, I screwed up that. Let me read it correctly. I will not speak much more with you. The ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. So at this point, he's, he's moving from uh, where they were having dinner, and he's starting his walk to the Garden of Gethsemane. Because that was about the furthest distance that um, they could travel as part of this holy process of uh, the Passover meal. So they had similar restrictions about what they could do in the process of this feast um, and how far they could travel and that kind of stuff. So they basically had to get everything prepared ahead of time so that they could uh, share in this meal and that they could celebrate the Passover. And part of that meant that they couldn't travel long distance. So uh, the furthest he could have gone would have been from where he was at having this meal through the temple, um, the uh, temple platform, right across the, the next to the temple, out the eastern gate of the Temple Mount, down the Kidron Valley, and up to a, a garden area where there was an, uh, an olive grove called the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's a, about a third of the way up the Mount of Olives. Um, for those of you that will join us when we go to uh, Israel uh, a little over a year from now, uh, we will go to the what they believe is the Garden of Gethsemane. It's important to remember that when the Romans came in and destroyed uh, Jerusalem in 70 AD, they actually cut down everything that grew for uh, several miles around, and they piled that all up against the walls of Jerusalem, these uh, Cenomanian limestone walls, and they lit a huge fire. And that that fire was so hot that it actually cracked the walls, and the walls came crumbling down. And you can see the evidence of the, the Temple Mount actually being destroyed and those walls of Jerusalem coming down. So the original Garden of Gethsemane does not exist today, but we can say where it probably was based upon what we know about how far they can travel. And uh, to commemorate that spot, they replanted olive trees. So you can go there today and you can see olive trees that are 1,500 years old or maybe older. They'll, they'll tell you that they're they back to that original garden, but they couldn't. Um, so all that area was destroyed. But that's what is about ready to happen, that they're about ready to take that walk. But before they take that walk, Jesus, having shown the love of God to the world and to those selected few, including two that would betray him or disown him, um, and give them a command. He now wants them to understand fully what it means to know him and to believe in him for life, for eternal life. Right? So that's where he says, do not let your heart be troubled. You can have peace in this. There's a lot of things that are happening in the world you can have no peace in. What they call peace in the world today is a cessation of hostility. It is not peace. If it was true peace, people would have, they would have a, a satisfaction in God. They would have a rest in God. They would have what we call shalom, which is um, that the, the world um, is as the way that God intended it to be. It is according to his design. And that we have a part in God's design. A part in God's um, creation and purpose for that creation. And you would rest in that. You would be whole and complete. And those are different translations of the word shalom, which in English gets translated peace. But we so confuse the word peace that we think it means, you know, cessation of hostilities, two warring armies laying down their arms, coming to an armistice, right? That's not peace. Whatever happens in this world is not peace until the, the king of peace comes back. Right? And so what Jesus is saying is, Shalom, do not let your heart be troubled. Rest in this. 
You believe in God. They were good Jewish people. They were followers of Yahweh. He says, believe also in me. In other words, snap the link. If you, if you trust God as your Savior, I am the one from God who saves you. Believe in me. Trust in me. That's what he's, that's the commandment here. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. So, this has to do with the culture of the day. The culture of the day was that um, when uh, a relationship would mature such that the chosen um, would be betrothed, right? So what would happen is, is that the, the man, and I've been told by my wife, who's not here so I can talk now, um, no, I've been told that the man has to pursue, that that's the role of the man. That actually is design order and creation. That the man chooses the woman and pursues her. And that in that, there is what we call a promise of betrothal that has, in this culture, the same weight as actually being married. And what happens is, is when that relationship is brought together and you're betrothed, the, the husband to the bride, um, the husband-to-be, before the marriage is consummated, would go off and would uh, earn the bride price and prepare the, the bride's um, place. Right? So earning the bride price means, uh, uh, and this is again a, a, uh, an Eastern thing, when we, we have this idea of a dowry that a woman brings into a marriage and that the man can uh, inherit into that dowry. In other words, he can become a part of that. So we read about like in, uh, oh, what's the, uh, Jane Austen. Right? The classic uh, Victorian romance stuff that, that she's written. And my wife loves it, and actually I watch it too. Don't tell anybody that. Um, because I love a good love story, right? I really do. But one of the things that you'll see there is that people would, would marry, uh, men would marry a rich woman because that was one way of elevating their status and ensuring for their survival. Now sometimes... Um, the man came with money and pursued the woman. And that's the case of Pride and Prejudice. Right? So you have a woman who, even though she's noble, has no resource. And the man chooses her anyway, which is unusual. She has nothing to give him. She has no dowry. Well, in Eastern culture, it's the exact opposite way around. The man has to pay the bride's family for the loss of that woman to the family. He has to pay a bride price. He has to provide a, a, a adornment for his bride. He needs to provide, uh, you know, the clothing that would be worn in the marriage ceremony. The, there would be jewelry and stuff like that associated with it. So as this is, you see the same kind of culture when I was in Africa, where I worked with a guy and he was betrothed to get married. He said, yeah, i got to go earn my cows. He would have to actually present cows to uh, the bride's family. And so uh, Karen took many cows. I had to earn many cows in order to marry Karen. Because she knew about Eastern culture and she knew my appreciation for that. So I had to pay a bride price. That's what this is about. This is about the groom going away to earn the bride price and to prepare the place that they would live. And the way that they did that is that the son who had the inheritance um, would take the family estate and build on a house for him and his bride. And they would raise their family there under their father's shadow. Right? So this is, this is something that, that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm going away um, to build, to prepare a place for you. I'm going away to uh, finish that bride price, right? And he, he mentions, he says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it wasn't that way, 
I would have told you. In other words, he's a true man. He's not going to lie to him. His father is rich. His father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Right? So he is truly a rich man. But nonetheless, he is going to build a house for you. That's what he's telling you. I'm going to, to build a house such that I can bring my bride to that house. I'm doing, that's what I'm going to do right now. I'm providing an eternal dwelling. Now, if you recall the promise that was given to Abraham, it was threefold. Does anybody remember the threefold promise to Abraham? I, I do it as three Ps. That there would be God's people in God's place with God's presence. So what that means is that God chooses you as the uh, groom chooses the bride, as the husband chooses the wife, that you are his people, that you have a place, you have a, a, in, in many ways like a location, but it's more than a location, because he further qualifies it. It's not just being in God's kingdom as one of his citizens, but it's also being in the very presence of God himself. To be in the presence of God himself means that you share in his life. That's what Jeremiah said when in uh, Lamentations, and I'm going to read uh, Lamentations real quick, just this one, chapter 3. Because Jeremiah, had, he's one of those uh, prophets that just really had a tough go of it. Right? His job was to tell people that um, they were about ready to get taken into captivity, that they were going to be broken on the rock, right? And that there would just be a remnant that would come back. And he goes on and he says in uh, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse um, 20, I'm going to read uh, 22 and 23. It says, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. For his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in him. In other words, what Jeremiah is saying, he's saying, he's declaring the goodness and the love of God, just as Jesus had revealed to his disciples. He said, this is the heart of God. Right? He uses the word kaset here, loving kindnesses. This is one of my favorite words in the Hebrew because it's the word that God uses to describe himself. When you read Exodus chapter uh, 32, verse 7, it's 32, verse 7, it might be 34, verse 7, um, that that's when God introduces himself to the people. He says, I am the Lord. I am loving kindness. And... Jeremiah recognizes this love of the Lord. He says, your faithfulness, God, as the groom to the bride, never fails. God is not going to lose you. He's not going to forsake you. He's not going to leave you. And Jesus says that. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's, that's God's loving kindness and faithfulness. Right? And then he goes on to say, the Lord is my portion. That word portion is the word they use for inheritance. That the very presence of God is that which is promised to me. To be in his presence. Therefore, I have hope in him. See, I have no life in myself. But I trust that God has life in himself. God the Father. Right? You believe in God. And God the Father obviously has life in himself because when the world was spoken into existence by the very word of God, it was the breath of life was breathed into man. And we, have, we bear the image of God and we bear um, the life of creation, which is separate from God but sustained by God. But what we're promised is eternal life which is eternally sustained by God. It is the very life of God itself. That doesn't make us God. That just means 
God loves us so much that he shares his life with us. You read that in John chapter 5. Jesus said, just as the Father had life in himself, so also the Son has life and can give it to whomever he chooses. Remember when we read about that in John chapter 5? That's what that's about. It's about that life is in God. That our inheritance is his presence. That's what this is about in John chapter 14. So first he says God loves you. He commands us to be as he is, to love. And then he says, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And that's a personal you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. So he promises that his death is not the end. So he's been telling them this for all, all along, right? He's been revealing to them, yes, the Son of Man is going to come down from the mountain. He's going to march into Jerusalem. He's going to be uh, betrayed. He's going to be uh, tried, beaten, hung on a cross, and died. He's been telling them that. But he's been saying that that's so that he can conquer death. And even though he's been telling them, they don't get it. So he's saying, when you see me die, know that this is true. I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Guess what? I'm going to hang on to that, because that's a promise. You know, there. this is a crazy world. And um, every week, every day, every hour, People are, are perishing and passing. Some pass, some perish. I would like to know that uh, more are passing into the presence of the Lord than are perishing and being eternally exiled from Him. Right? He, but He will come again, and He will receive me to where I, where He is also. He says, and you know the way where I'm going. Why would they know the way? As he told them. He's been showing them. He's been speaking to them. He's been speaking to them from the prophets. He's been speaking to them from the law. You recall when he went up to the Mount of Transfiguration, there were two that met with him there. Moses and Elijah. A prophet and a priest. The, the author of the law and the one who represented the uh, prophetic revelation of God to the people. Elijah great prophet. So the prophet and the law have been speaking about who the Messiah is from the very beginning. You've got to remember, Moses wrote in the beginning God. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Right. So there has been this revelation to us from God, a special revelation that covers all of time. Right? And, and here we are. He says, you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas, and I love Thomas, we sometimes call him Doubting Thomas, because he's the one that said, unless I can put my hand in his side and, and put my fingers in his hand and see the, the actual nail holes, I won't believe. Right? So we call him Doubting Thomas. Thomas was, was one that um, wanted to make his certain, certainty certain. Right? He, he was, uh, um, it's not that he didn't believe. It's that he wanted to know intimately the Lord the way that Peter did. He wanted to be able to declare, I will not leave, ever leave you or forsake you. I will lay down my life for you, which Thomas did, by the way. Right? So Thomas, it's like, okay, Lord, we don't get it. We do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Thomas still hasn't got it cognitively, right? It's like, you've been telling me, I'm struggling with it, what is it? So Jesus makes this statement to him. I am the way. So um, in grammar, there is what they call, um, um, it makes it definite. It's the, the, it's the particle in speech that we, so you can have a general statement, like you can have a way, which might mean that there's a whole lot of ways. 
or you can have the way, which means it's specific. There is one. It says, I am the way. I am the truth, the one and only truth. And I am the life. There is the one and only life. There is no other life. There is no other truth. There is no other way than Jesus. And he says, no one comes to the Father but through me. That is an incredibly um, specific, um, clear-cut statement about who Christ is and what our obligation is in the presence of that revelation. So God is now revealed. There is one way. It isn't the prophet Muhammad. It isn't um, Joseph Smith or the angel Moroni. Right? There's only one way. There is only one truth. And there is only one life. And if you place your trust somewhere else, in some other way, or some other truth, there is no life. The only life that there is is in God himself. And in his son. And he can freely give that to whomever he chooses. And guess what? He chooses you. Right? He says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. So Jesus is making one of those statements that they wanted to stone him for. Not his 12, but when he made this statement in public, people picked up stones because they said, you're committing blasphemy. He said, why? For what do you stone me? And they said, because you, being a man, make yourself God. That's what they said. They accurately understood what Jesus was saying. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father. That means that he and the Father are one. They're one in purpose. They're one in essence. But they're distinct. And that we understand that in becoming fully human, Christ took on that servanthood to all of creation. All things were created by him and for him. That's what we read in Colossians. And he upholds all things. It's in Colossians chapter 1. And yet, he humbled himself and became a man, which we read last week in Philippians, and I'll read again. It says, Have that, this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He wasn't taking anything away from God in being equal to him, because he was fully God. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we understand that there is a distinction between the Father and the Son. Even though they're, they're equal, of same essence, and of same purpose, such that the Son does everything that the Father wills. Whatever the Father's will is, the Son does it. Right? <coughs> And yet they're distinct. The Son takes on humanity fully to the point of death. Death on a cross. He humbled himself. He washed the feet of his disciples. He is the servant. In fact, Isaiah calls him the suffering servant. That's what we read in Isaiah 53. It's about the suffering servant. right? So you see two parts of the Godhead here. You see, from now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, show us the Father. And it is enough for us. In other words, you got Thomas, trying, you know, he's like wrestling with this heavy-duty theology at a time when they're about ready to get scattered. So a lot is going on politically. You know, I mean, these guys are under pressure, just as Jesus is under pressure. They know that they're hiding out, that Jesus is sitting there stirring the pot. Every day he goes out, goes up to the Temple Mount and preaches, more people get ticked off because he's declaring a truth they don't want to hear. They're experiencing that too. And in the midst of this, he's trying to you know, get this whole message of who Christ is, to know him and to believe in him. Right? 
So Philip says, show us the Father. It's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, yet you have not come to know me, Philip? Got to remember, Philip was one of those guys there at the beginning with John and Andrew and Peter. Philip, he was number four. He was the one that went to Nathaniel and said, hey, we found Messiah. Right? So here's Philip, who's been with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry. He says, how long have you been with me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Talking about that, that Godhead, that the d- divinity, the deity, the, the God-man. He said, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. There's a unity. There's a single essence. Right? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. So the very works of Jesus are the works of the Father. And the works are the result of the will. So it was God's will that as a result of that which he willed and his character worked all of creation and works in creation. So when people were supernaturally healed, that which was outside of nature, where God you know, intervened from heaven to earth, that was, that was God's will for a purpose. Because God's will is never without purpose. Right? That's the works that they've seen. But the Father inviting in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. In other words, you can, um, through your experiential knowledge of having walked with me and come to know who I am at a personal level, believe and trust. You can believe because of Scripture, because Scripture declares it. And every word from the mouth of God is true and good for doctrine and for reproof, which we don't like to hear. Right? That, that that's true, or we can just believe based upon the evidence in the world itself, the works of God. What is the great work of God that we believe today? It's coming up here in a few weeks. There's been no greater work where one who had died was raised from the dead, never to die again, but ascended into heaven. That's what happened when God conquered death. It was conquered once for all time, is what it says in Hebrews. That truly, the enemy of sin in creation, the result of sin is death, has been conquered. This is the conquering king. So when you see him again, guess what? The conquering king returns. And he's going to put down that which is against his kingdom. So you're going to have a, you're going to have a, a return of the king. But he's saying, you know, you can believe um, that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, or you can just believe the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So, what's your first thought when you hear that? I'm I'm back on verse 12. Okay. Where it says, He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do. Yep. What would be greater than what Christ has done? Um, when Christ died, he um, paid the penalty for our sin, right? So we're forgiven. Which means that God holds us harmless. That which was required is no longer required. And then he also remedied the consequence. He rose from the dead. What would be greater than that. But it's saying people that you, know, you you and me would 
the works that we would be doing mm -hmm. would be greater than that. Yeah, not only not only what we do um, says the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works he'll do because I go to the Father. So that means that whatever Christ did, as far as being in accord with the will of the Father, such that he could speak in a prophetic voice to the people the will of God, which we can do, by the way. So every time I get up here and I read to you from Scripture, I'm reading in a prophetic voice. That's why it says that there's a, uh, there's a weight to those that would teach. There's a consequence that I, have, I bear a responsibility. Because the responsibility I'm bearing is I'm taking on the prophetic half, prophetic role. And I am giving to you that which Christ himself gave to the world. Right? So I'm doing that which he did. Um, when we gather around a person who is ill, and we anoint them with oil, and we pray for their healing, and they're healed, who does the healing? Christ. Right. Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, intervenes in the course of history and accomplishes the healing. Who did it in Christ's day? When Christ was there and he was walking and a person was healed, who did that? Christ. The Father did it through the Son. Right? There was an accord. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father between the Father and the Son, such that the Son does exactly what the Father wills. And He speaks exactly what the Father speaks. We can do that. Now, if it's not God's will that a person be healed from a physical malady, but rather they be healed from a spiritual malady, that's God. I cannot understand fully the will of God. I can only understand that which is revealed to me. And he says, guess what? Not everything's revealed to you. You know, we can't know the mind of God. But nonetheless, we can love as Christ loved. And we can give our life as he has given his life. And the greater thing that happens is that the whole world can be saved through his ambassadors. Wow. Talk about an individual responsibility. So everybody that's hearing this message um, is actually doing a greater work when they repeat it. When someone who is lost and perishing comes into eternal life and knows the presence of God for eternity, receives the promise in full, has an inheritance. That is a greater work. And he can do that because he goes to be with the Father. So when he goes to be with the Father, if you read Daniel 7.13, it talks about one, like the Son of Man, who is presented before the Ancient of Days. And to him is given a dominion. Right? In other words, he is appointed king. He has to be presented to the Father before he can take that role as the one in dominion over creation. Even though all things were created through him and by him and for him, they were created for this day, April 3rd, 33 AD, when he would die on the cross. And that he would be presented to the Father. That his blood would be presented as a sacrifice for sin. Once for all time. And that as a result of that, he would resume the glory that he had with the Father. Right? We just read in Philippians that he humbled himself and became a servant, a bondservant. Right? And if we read on, and I know I'm out of time, but I need to read this last verse. For this reason also, God highly exalted him. That's Daniel 7.13. He becomes the full conquering king. Right? Not that he wasn't before, but all of a sudden the crown is placed on his head. 
and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. What name is above every name? The name of God, Lord. He is crowned King of Kings, Lord of Lords. As he sits at the right hand of the throne of God, he is able to draw all men to himself. How does he do that? He does that through us. We can do a greater work as a result of him going to the Father. Incredible, powerful passage as to what he's instructing and what he's declaring to his people. And I know I've gone way over Let's go ahead and close here in prayer. Lord, we thank you for our opportunity to share from uh, your word this morning uh, and wrestle with it. Um, Lord, we ask that you would uh, transform us in your presence, that you would uh, truly be um, present in all aspects of our lives. As we read about uh, a little further on, um, your presence of the Holy Spirit in us and that you're reaching the world um, through us as we are in accord with you, as we love you. Lord, um, we just ask that you would uh, change us and transform us. And um, Lord, thank you. Such that it just kind of leaks out of us when we're in the presence of others. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you for all that you've done for us, your provision, your protection, and Lord, your incredible service to us. We thank you for this, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.